the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hour three of our daily three-hour tour. It is a uh, privilege to welcome to the show, first-time new guest, Professor Adam Elwinger. He is a professor of English at the University of Houston in Texas, and he has a piece up over at the American Mind. Why do you know that is what it's uh, titled. And uh, when when you think there isn't a lot of interesting new stuff being written about uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project, here comes the good professor with some new and interesting things and insights about her and the 1619 Project. Professor Elwinger, pleasure to have you on. Thanks for coming on. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Seth. I like the Van Halen intro there. I'm Thank you fan. for saying so. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, people come for the talk. They stay for the music on this show, Adam. Maybe you'll like some of our other bumpers as well. First-time guest, I always ask this of them. Uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, a little autobiography, and how you came to be doing what you're doing, sir. Sure. Uh, well, I grew up in Rochester, New York. Um, and was kind of directionless, um, went to college eventually and studied, uh, English literature at first. Um, right about after 9-11 was when I graduated from college and, uh, obviously 9-11 hit, hit very hard. I was living in Western New York at the time where I'm from and, um, a number of other life things happened at that moment. Uh, and I decided to go back to grad school. Uh, and, um, that was when I made the turn to studying rhetoric or argumentation and, um, persuasion. Um, finished my PhD in, in rhetorical studies, uh, in 2009, got a job in Houston, Texas, and I've been at the university, uh, Houston downtown ever since. A few years back, this was probably right after uh, Barack Obama's Justice Department issued a Dear Colleague letter mm-hmm. um, expanding Title IX. Mm-hmm. Some of your listeners might be familiar with Oh, it. yeah, we've been, we've been doing a lot on that, <laughs> as you can imagine lately. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. At that, around that time, uh, a, a fraudulent Title IX uh, complaint was filed against me, and I've always been a conservative, but um, it was that moment that I realized uh, how deeply embedded um, the, the ideological motives were in higher ed. And at that time, I decided to start de- devoting a lot more energy towards writing for the public instead uh. of just writing for professors and academics. Um, and I've been doing that for about five years now, and, and uh, you came across my latest on the 1619 Project, and um, I'll have many more. Wonderful. Did did you say you, you your politics have generally been uh, center right or conservative your whole life, or did you have a wake up call uh, given the Title IX thing or nine eleven, or were you all pretty were you always pretty much uh, at the same viewpoint? Well, I guess I had you know um, I was I was kind of a transgressive youth. I was into alternative music and stuff, and I guess I as a intellectually curious person. Around 20 or 21, I became very interested in Marxism, but 
um, ultimately I, I sort of moved out of that, um, especially uh, as I came to understand some of the contradictions there. Ah. Um, but, you know, um, ever throughout my adult life, uh, I suppose I've been uh, conservative to some degree. I think that recent events have definitely pushed me even further in that direction. I'm thinking of uh, the Russian collusion hoax, uh, the treatment of Kavanaugh in, in his hearings, um, and generally uh, the mismanagement of the country over the entire uh, entire course of this new century. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Professor. The la- last last uh, question, autobiographical, but now moving a little bit more into public policy before I get to your great essay at the American Mind. You, you said you studied rhetoric, and I'm just wondering if they – do they still – I mean, since you've left, do they still teach rhetoric? I mean, you think about – I haven't seen a good course in rhetoric in forever, and boy, you think about the way we do, we engage in dialogue in this country these days and the fallen state of it. I just wonder if that's still around much anymore. Do you still see rhetoric majors around? Not many universities have an undergraduate major in it, but my university has a master's degree in rhetoric and writing. Great. And a lot of them do. I actually think that um, the time that we're living in is a a really interesting time to study argument persuasion, particularly because we've got these new media forms that are, uh, are... making persuasion work a little bit differently than they have in the past. And neologisms, new words, too, right? I mean, uh, a, whole, oh, a whole slew of, of and, new, uh, new words. And old words changing their meaning. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> yes. Well, yes, yes, we have new words, and if that won't do, we'll just... George Orwell like change the old words. <laughs> it's got to be it's got to be tough to communicate these days. I would think you and I are both in the communication business. Um, all right. So the first thing that I have to tell you, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, about your essay on the sixteen nineteen project. Again, over at the American Mind, AmericanMind.org. It was the title. Why do you know that? Most titles would be How do you know that? And I love that it's Why do you know that? Because it seemed to me you. Maybe, maybe, unless I'm reading too much into it, we're kind of getting to the 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 merits of of what we're talking about and the conditions that lead us to accept these things, rather than the methodology which so much politics is consumed by. I don't know if that was at all intentional in the title, but I kind of was attracted to it because you were going uh, not for methodology so much as you were for the essence of the issue. Well, I, I should tell you, to be fair, uh, at the outset, that title is not mine. After all that, that was the brainchild of the good editors at, at the American okay. Mind. Uh-huh. Um, my original title was Misinformation, Disinformation, and the 1619 Project. But to talk a little bit about their title, which I think was apt, um, in, in my view, what it signifies, you're right, that typically you'd say, how do you know that? Yeah. To ask, why do you know yeah. that? Yeah. Suggests that, that perhaps you shouldn't know it. Right. Um, perhaps right. that there is some knowledge out there that the hoi polloi or the everyday American shouldn't have access to or should be shielded from. Right. And I think that the, the concept of disinformation, not disinformation itself, not knowledge that we call disinformation, but the idea of disinformation is being leveraged by the left to ensure that many Americans can't encounter the truths that they simply aren't supposed to know. Right. Um, 
And I think that the title reflects that. that, That's a perfectly good answer. And that, by the way, I'm glad that you focused on the word disinformation because that was the first word in uh, one of the paragraphs that I focused on as well. Disinformation, you write, Professor, disinformation can often be recognized when you see its purveyors shifting standards when it comes to verification. Truth is critical for historical work. It matters what actually happened. You're, of course, talking about the 1619 Project. Talk to me about these shifting standards of verification. Well, um, I think that the, the trajectory of left politics, probably since World War II, has been a project to undermine our idea of truth and what counts as truth, to make truth a subjective concept, um, something that each individual must determine for themselves, and which is not a universal phenomenon that's binding for everyone. Um, and they're often pretty good about this. So, you know, you look at the new Supreme Court nominee when uh, she's asked, what is a woman? And she says, well, I'm not a biologist, mm-hmm. right? Uh, as if that is uh, a very difficult question to answer, one that requires some kind of scientific expertise. Um, and I think it's it's this that... Um, is the trend is at least on the left is suggesting that knowledge is malleable that it's changeable that is difficult to ascertain however right when it suits the left right they shift back very quickly to an ironclad standard of truth yeah. the old universal absolute truth mm-hmm. um and demand that that be acknowledged mm-hmm. and affirmed mm-hmm. uh so where we see this with the 1619 project is that Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is, is the leader of this project, will say something like, we needed the 1619 project because the truth of American history has been ignored. Okay, it's Adam, hold on one second, Professor, if I might. I have to take a quick commercial break. That is the essence of everything here that you're about to get into. Can I keep you just a little bit for the other side of this? Absolutely. Com- I've got some time with you. Great. Professor Adam... Uh, Adam Elwinger is our guest. Sorry about that. Adam Elwinger, his piece at the American Mind, why do you know that? And he, yeah, you just put your finger on the real the real issue here. I'm Seth Liebson. He's uh, Dr. Elwinger, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Professor Adam Ellinger from the University of Houston is our guest, and uh, we're talking about his piece at the American Mind, AmericanMind.org. Why do you know that is the title of it. It's about the 1619 Project and Nicole Hannah-Jones, and we're talking about disinformation. And, uh, Professor, you were just about to talk about some of the justification uh, Ms. Hannah-Jones makes for the 1619 Project. If I could interrupt that thought for half a moment first for a quick um, clarification. We're talking a lot about disinformation. That's what you're writing about. And I think it's important to distinguish that from misinformation because it's a more – you're a scholar of language and rhetoric. It's, 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 it's a more vile form of misinformation, isn't it? Disinformation is much more what? Uh, deliberate, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's the distinction. I think that properly understood misinformation is nothing more than information that's wrong. Yeah. Um, disinformation uh, is a, a descriptor for wrong information that is deliberately yeah. shared. Yeah, there's a volition right? to it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that what we're seeing now, if you if you watch carefully, take Joe Rogan, right? Okay. Like people have been very upset about his podcast since he had Dr. Malone on mm-hmm. mRNA vaccines. If you look at the critics of Rogan, there's no standard about what they call him. They say, oh, he's spreading misinformation. Right. Oh, he's spreading disinformation. Yeah. Those are two very different concepts, uh-huh. and I think that the line between them is being very deliberately blurred mm-hmm. um, for particular political purposes. Yeah, a lot is being blurred. <laughs> Lately, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of distinctions, shall we say. Some of them we used to think were immutable, which last I checked meant unchangeable. But anyway, mm-hmm. Professor, we can come back to that point too if you want. But all right, so you were you were getting going on Nicole Hannah-Jones. And then her justification for the 1619 project. Uh, go go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry we had to break for a commercial, but we're That's back. That's all right. Yeah. She, Nicole Hannah-Jones says that the nation, that the United States, is suffering a case of national amnesia. Mm-hmm. And that is that we've forgotten the truth of our past. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where her project comes in. It seeks to redress, to remember for us what she asserts is the truth of our past. That's what history is about, is writing the truth of the past. Now, as your listeners probably know, a number of uh, historians, and among them the very best American experts on this country's founding, have hotly contested some of her claims, mm-hmm. uh, most notably that uh, the the origin of the nation, that the Declaration of Independence, was motivated by concerns of preserving slavery. Right. Um, Gordon Wood, others have said that's just an erroneous claim, flatly. These are Demo- these are liberal professors, by the way. I mean, I know Sean Wellens and Gordon Wood, and these these are not conservative professors. That's absolutely right. Now, the interesting thing is that when confronted with that challenge on the grounds of truth, right, uh, Hannah Jones um, and other defenders of the 1619 Project return to this subjective idea of the truth and say, well, who are you to say what's truth? Truth is up to the individual. What history is is just a kind of storytelling that can be done from various perspectives, And why do you, Professor Wood, get to tell us what the founding was about when we are just as able? Mm -hmm. And so what you see is uh, they they appeal to an absolute truth as being the reason that we need the site, the 1619 Project. But as soon as it's challenged on the grounds of truth, we retreat back to a subjectivist, uh, everybody has their own perspective, no one is better than another. Uh Uh-huh. And that's one of the signs, I think, that the 1619 Project is itself a form of disinformation. Yeah. Even its origins, I think, are, given uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones's claim about national amnesia, which is to say that uh, we don't teach slavery uh, or that it's been forgotten or is unknown to most Americans. That is a trick, I don't know if there's a better word for it, uh, a trick of some kind or other that has been picked up, Professor, my, by, by, my, by my tell, has been picked up by all the defenders of critical race theory um, and 1619 Project uh, pedagogy, which is we who oppose it are opponents of the truth, don't want to teach real history, we're afraid of history or we're afraid of our past or we're afraid of the truth. And I have to tell you, I mean, you grew up in, I guess, Rochester, right? I grew up here. Um, 
I'm, I'm a bit older than you, so maybe this is maybe even all the more important when I say this. But I grew up in Phoenix, which does not have a large and certainly back then did not have a large African-American population. We knew all the uh, we were we were taught all of this. I went through I, I used to study history textbooks. There was that very prominent one. Uh, uh, for years, uh, Samuel Elliott Morrison series, um, and it had different editors going forward. I've looked at these indexes. I've read these books. They mention slavery all over the place in America. This this is a lie and a trick that this was any kind of course correction or necessary or that we're afraid of it. What we are afraid of is the misinformation and distortion. That's my pitch. I wonder if you agree. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that um – that it is, uh, like you said, I guess the simplest word for it is a trick. In fact, the truth is that this country is utterly transfixed by its uh, racial history, that um, arguably we talk about uh, slavery and that aspect of our past more than any other aspect. Mm. Um, occasionally, uh, you will hear uh, someone who is interested in racial issues in the United States say, we need to have an honest national conversation right. about race. Right. Well, that honest you know, national conversation has been going on for the better part of 50 years in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, when they say that, what they mean is not, you know, that, that we're not having the conversation, because it's undeniable. That's all we talk about. What they really mean is they're not satisfied with the outcome of that conversation. And thus, from their perspective, it might as well not even have happened. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that, uh, that the idea that this is somehow ignored in American history is just, and in the teaching of American history is simply false. If anything, I think that um, young people in America now especially uh, overestimate the, um, for example, things like uh, how widespread slave ownership was in the antebellum South and a lot of other um, realities of of the the very ugly slave trade, yeah. Um, I'm going to hit another break here. I can keep you for a little bit longer, Professor, because you just keep giving me great things to talk to you about on this because I think you've opened up a great – a great level of inquiry. If, if I can keep you a little longer, I'd love to as I head into a break real quick. That'd Happy be okay. to wait for a minute. Thank you. I appreciate it. Professor Adam Ellinger is our guest, uh, professor at the University of uh, Houston. And uh, let's see here. I was going to give out uh, your uh, Twitter address as well, at Dr. Elwanger, E-L-L-W-A-N-G-E-R, if people want to follow you on Twitter. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Adam Elwanger. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Professor Adam Ellinger from the University of Houston is our guest. We're talking about his piece at the American Mind, AmericanMind.org. Why do you know that? It's about Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project. Professor, this is kind of where I wanted to open up a little bit with you as we um, as we are, are discussing this. Uh, you're, a prof- you're in the teaching profession. Do you worry about as problematic as the 1619 Project is, its ubiquity, 40-year-old parents who are, you know, involved in other pursuits, uh, you know, their jobs, their work, their, uh, their, their, their recreation, their raising of children, 
They don't have time to see what Sean Wellens and Gordon Wood had to say about this if they even you know, would know where to look. Um, but it is an increasingly number uh, – it's an increasing number of schools that are adopting the 1619 curriculum. Do you worry about us losing you – know, I guess the phrase would be a lingua franca in a sense. We were talking about words losing their meaning, history losing its meaning. I mean it's going to be a very nihilistic society at a certain point, isn't it, when nothing is true or agreed upon anymore? Well, the the truth will always be true. The question is whether or not people will know it. And you're right to suggest that if people don't know the truth, that doesn't make it untrue, but it might as well be untrue yeah, yeah, if yeah. no one knows it. Yeah. Um, and I do think, well, sadly, I think we might already be there. Okay. Um, I, I think that there is uh, a knowledge crisis um and and especially younger americans i think that sadly to some extent that knowledge crisis uh, i guess you could say ignorance is deliberate in other words um a, a curricula have been established precisely to withhold certain information from young americans um now as far as the 1619 project in in particular is concerned uh i I think even if, you know, Hannah Jones' version of it dies on the vine, and it may, it's clear, you know, Chris Rufo, other people who are studying uh, CRT in schools, it's pretty clear that the spirit of the 1619 project uh, is is still uh, haunting um, American schools and expanding its grip, I think. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how how to defeat that. I will say that uh, demanding accountability, uh, some governor's uh, efforts like DeSantis to make uh, curricula in public schools more transparent, these are all promising and and reasons for hope, um, and I hope that they continue. I do, too. I do, too. You said it right, and and I quote this. Often, uh, I don't know if you ever saw the doc, what the movie, the miniseries. I think it was on HBO uh, on Chernobyl, but it opens up with uh, the scientists. They're saying the cost of lies is not that we'll mistake them for the truth. The real danger is that if we hear enough of them, we'll no longer re- recognize the truth at all. And 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 that is where we are. I mean, that is an interesting thing about the rhetoric of people saying my truth, isn't it? It says two things. It says uh, one. That um, that there is something else out there called truth, right? And they are distinguishing what they have to say from it. That there, there's a tacit admission in there. People who use that phraseology may not be aware of. I think, anyway, just a thought. I think that's right. I have a colleague in my department uh, who is is uh, has a different political perspective than I do, but he's fond of talking to his graduate students about the virtues of what he calls little t truth mm. um that is truth without the capital t mm-hmm. um and an argument that i have had uh with this colleague is that if it's little t truth then it's not truth yeah. conceptually truth is absolute universal transcendent uh it's true as for me as it is for you yeah and when we suggest that that is not the case, well, then truth ceases to be. I mean, it really is kind of a cultural nihilism. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, I think often people on the right uh, think of Nietzsche, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, the 
the philosopher as a nihilist, but in fact, much of his work was was warning us of um, the coming of a kind of cultural nihilism where where certainty and uh, knowledge, true knowledge, would be impossible. And I, I think he anticipated it pretty well. I think that's what we're living through. Professor Ellinger, I hope this can be the first of many return visits. I thoroughly enjoyed having you, and I really appreciate not only your essay, but your time with us. Truly, I do, and I want to thank you for that. Thanks very much for reading the essay. Thanks for having me. I had fun. Good. That's what we're here for. AmericanMind.org. Why do you know that? Professor Adam Ellinger. Godspeed to you, sir. We'll be in touch soon again, I hope. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Balance of Nature. Their fruits and veggies are what I take every day. They are fabulously potent and fabulously easy to take. Pure, potent plant power, 100% whole foods, 100% natural, not 99 and 44, 100%, 100%, even the capsules. Um, which if you don't like swallowing, uh, you can easily open up. They're designed for that to be sprinkled on because they know some people don't like swallowing the capsule. I have no problem. It's like a standard capsule, nothing nothing out of the ordinary. But a lot of people don't like it and they want to make it easy for you. Uh, no gluten, no GMOs, no added vitamins or other chemicals, third-party tested. I've been taking them for three years to boost my immunity, keep me healthy, maintain my health. And they have – Balance of Nature has not let me down or anyone else I know who has taken it as a result of hearing – me promote it on this show. Everything from uh, tomatoes and wild blueberries and strawberries and the fruits, plus about 13 other fruits, and everything in the veggies uh, from uh, kale and carrot and soybean and celery and zucchini uh, and uh, and uh, green cabbage and wheatgrass, plus about 11 other whole vegetables in one daily dose. Balance of Nature, balanceofnature.com to boost your immune, immunity and maintain your health. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. For the best deal available, use discount code BALANCE. Dennis is in Phoenix. Thank you for your patience, sir. Hey, Seth. How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? Terrific, terrific. Uh, Love the show. Love the show. And I just want to call in real quick because I think, you know, it seems like everything that we're talking about, you're talking about, um, it all is kind of tying together, you know, no matter if it's, uh, what's happening on the universities, what's happening on politics, or what's happening with censorship in the big media. And I just wanted to call in and uh, give you an example of uh, censorship, censorship that happened to me personally Okay. Um, regarding some media. And so um, I work for a company. We make art supplies, you know, that we sell to large chain stores and independently and stuff. And so we have an artist that lives in the Ukraine, her and her husband, and um, – Obviously, they're very impacted by what's going on now with sure. the war. Um, and so she has about 40,000 followers on YouTube, Facebook, various social media platforms. Uh-huh. And a lot of those followers have emailed her and asked her, you know, how can we help? So we just started, you know, as a grassroots thing. We just started, hey, send them my email. And, and before we knew it, we, you know, within a couple of days, we had $10,000. You know, two weeks later, we have $70,000. Oh, that's really that great. It's amazing. We're buying uh, a lot of uh, medical supplies, and we're shipping them to a friend in Poland, and they're getting them to the Ukraine. So this is all really good stuff, and it's all, you know, it's a lot of artistic people. So
And uh, so we just recently switched to a new platform and to do a, a more of a bulk email so I can add pictures and make it more robust and let them know what's going on with, with the artist in the Ukraine, where all the money is going and all of that kind of stuff. So it's really, it's really been uh, heart, you know, it's all heartfelt and it's been terrific. So the second newsletter that we send out, this big media um, company says that we don't meet their standards for community guidelines. And it's, it's completely insane. All we're doing is updating about what's going on in the Ukraine with these medical supplies, how we're helping people. Um, you know, we're doing, you know, pictures of medical supplies with first aid people and things like that. And we can't even talk about the reality of what's going on in the ground and in and, I uh, wonder what standard it violates. Did they give you an, a, a, an example or, or, or any identification of what the standard is that it's in mm-hmm. violation of? I, I asked that question. So I sent an e- So the first response was kind of an auto response. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's weird, and it might be kind of, you know, it might be, uh, you know, some algorithm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Sometimes so that I, has, does happen. Right. right. You just say enough words yeah. that they know to. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. So, so I, I did email them. They had a link there that I could email, and so I emailed the link, and it came back, uh, you know, a couple hours later, and it seemed like it was actually written from with by a person, but mm-hmm. you know, who knows? Yeah. Um, but it so I did a screenshot of it, and I still have the email, and basically it says that um, uh, we do, uh, you know, we do not uh, fill fulfill the needs of their community guidelines, our 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 business, our industry, or whatever. And uh, they, that we should take our um, our business elsewhere is literally what they say. Huh? <laughs> huh? It's, it's just completely bizarre. But you know, so here's something that you're just trying. You know, it's an it's a it's a group. You know, it's left people, right people. We we haven't talked about any politics at oh, all. Yeah. We haven't talked about anything that could be you know you know even misconstrued as uh, as. Uh, as political yeah. or anything and like on that. top of that it's and, it's and with the current of the time which is to support the ukrainians not the russians i know there's a little element out ex- there that does ex- that but yeah right exactly exactly yeah so so it's it's so bizarre so um you know in, in some of the email in, in some of the emails that i did do this was before we switched to this new platform i did um and i've gotten nothing but positive feedback from it i did uh, i i kind of elaborate and go into like some of the statistics about like you know people are we're having dialogue in some of these emails people are emailing me and it's about three or four hundred people and and so um so uh, and a lot of very left artistic people like i said and so in one in some of the emails uh people were comment you know people have been um replying to me and talking you know saying negative things about russia obviously. And so I put it in context and I said, you know, one of the problems we have here, and I, you know, I did a much longer uh, uh, copy and narrative on it, but I said, you know, the history of Russia is that they just don't care about not only any people, but their people. Mm -hmm. You know, during the war, they, during World War II, they had, you know, from 21 to 27 million deaths of their own people because they were just you know, they were just throwing people at the problem. And then after the war, you know, they've had 20-plus million people that have died as political prisoners. And, you know, so you have 40 to 50 million people wow. that they just really don't 
yeah. even care about. Yeah. And so, yeah. Well, you know, one of they the have issues no value that, for life. Yeah. No. Listen. I mean. We are beginning to see censorship from the government. There's no question about that. Most of it until now has been the kind you've been describing. It's come from private entities, but private entities have been where we have to go to engage in the marketplace of ideas as much as the marketplace of charity uh, as well as the marketplace of communication. Um, Dennis, I'm sorry this happened, uh, but yeah, when you engage in censorship and using that blunderbuss, you're going to take out good as well as the not-so-good, and you were victim to that. I'm sorry for that story. We'll be right back. Thanks for uh, spending some of your afternoon with us. I wanted to close on an ele- another element of this whole issue of uh, Judge uh, Brown Jackson not, able to, uh, te- not being able to tell us what a woman is without a biology degree. And um, it dawns on me that uh, this is something we have been dealing with for a very long time. My teacher, Harry Jaffa, uh, put it this way. Human speech about an object presupposes that we employ common nouns. And any abandonment of them is an abandonment of science. To say, for example, this is a chair, if I'm pointing to a chair, implies that there are an infinite number of of possible chairs, each different from this one, and yet all equally chairs. The mind has abstracted the idea of the chairs from the visible forms of particular chairs. In fact, you know what I'm talking about without possibly even being in front of or seeing a chair, just as the eye abstracted the visible forms from their matter. The mind frees itself from all sense perception every time it employs a universal, that is, a common noun. The common noun, the ground and basis for what we call common sense, is at once the principal ingredient of the most ordinary experience and the greatest of all miracles. It exhibits the mind detached from matter, understanding material things just because it is detached from them. In understanding that this is a chair, to repeat, we understand that there are an infinite number of possible chairs, each different from this. We understand that there is no particular color that makes a chair a chair. If any element in the idea of the chair had color, then to the extent that the mind could not comprehend then, then to that extent the mind could not comprehend chairs for the idea of a chair to be the intelligible basis for perceiving any number of possible chairs it must be abstracted from all sensible qualities only then will it be seen that all chairs are equally chairs this is what's at stake here in misidentifying and misdirecting the identification of things we used to call common nouns like man and woman. You can get into it more tomorrow if you want. And until then, God bless you all, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.